Uh, Today's reading is from the book of Ruth, chapter 3, which can be found at page 411 of your Black Bibles. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I'm your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until the morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognised, and he said, No one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, Bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi, asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Thank you, Mark. I introduced myself before, sorry. My name's Carl. I'm the pastor here at Trinity Church, and we've been working our way through the book of Ruth over the last few weeks together. I met my wife, that's Meredith, she was doing the kids talk before, when we were on a long bus ride together. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about the story later on today, but for now it's enough that you know about us that we had a pretty stock standard boring proposal, really. I asked and she said yes. But there is a strong trend at the moment, isn't there, towards amazing proposals, people trying to outdo each other so to speak. I wonder what is the most amazing proposal story that you've ever heard. I know in our community 
here at Trinity Church only, there is at least one proposal story that was so amazing it ended up being a segment on morning TV. As a challenge for you today, you might like to work out whose proposal story that actually is. Our passage today, it has all the hallmarks of an amazing proposal story. It's a bit more Hollywood than real life, isn't it? It's a story that's full of intrigue, involves a midnight tryst on a threshing floor. This chapter, as we read through it, did it seem to you that it was filled with double entendres and euphemism? It's an entertaining chapter, isn't it? It's a great story. My question for you, though, is what is it actually about? Sure, it's a marriage proposal, and it's a little bit unusual because it's the woman who's doing the asking more than the traditional man doing the asking, but why this elaborate setup? What do you think's going on in this chapter? As you think about that question, let me just say again that I'm very thankful for Tim Patrick, who started us off in this series, the principal of the Bible College here. I'm very thankful for his work in the book of Ruth. Uh, I've listened to how Tim would preach this chapter, and he's given me a big leg up into my understanding of what's going on. I stand firmly upon his work today. And let me say that next week, Tim will be back with us to finish the last chapter in the book of Ruth. And if, if you've got questions that have come up as you've been working your way through the book of Ruth, can I suggest you write them down now, and next week, when Tim's here, we'll have a chance to ask Tim all of the tricky questions that you've come up with from the book of Ruth. So if you're reading it this week in your quiet time or in your community groups, there's something you don't quite understand, write that down and next week we'll have a chance to ask Tim those questions. Well, let me remind you of the story so far. In chapter one, we were introduced to a family that had the father, Elimelech. He's married to Naomi and they have two sons, Marlon and Kilion. They lived in the time of the judges. And there was a famine in the land, so Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons leave the promised land, the land that was supposed to flow with milk and honey, and they head away from the promises of God back into the land of Moab. Two weeks ago, Tim helped remind us of the antagonism that existed between Israel and Moab. He helped us to see that it was a really surprising place for an Israelite family to go. Well, five verses into the book of Ruth, we're told that Elimelech is now dead and his two sons are also dead and Naomi is left all alone with just Ruth, her daughter-in-law, who out of kindness and loyalty pledges herself to Naomi. But at the end of chapter one, things are pretty grim. It's not a good time in history, in the time of the judges, to be a widow And Naomi's bitter about the way her life has turned out. You might remember from chapter 1 in verse 20 that she, she changes her name from Naomi to Mara, meaning bitter, and she says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back bitter. And then we got to chapter 2. They're now back in the land where they're supposed to be. And things start to slowly improve for Naomi. And that improvement, it primarily comes through the work of Ruth. It's Ruth who goes off to work and comes back with food. The transition in Naomi's life from being empty to full 
is there for everyone to see. That's because God is at work, reversing Naomi's fortunes. The text doesn't explicitly say that, but the idea of God being at work is kind of lurking behind every aspect of this text. It's not chance or luck or fate that's caused Naomi's fortunes to be reversed. No, God is at work, providentially at work. Let me give you an example of this. We're introduced by the narrator Boaz at the start of chapter 2. We're told he's a relative of Naomi's and he's also a man of good standing. Then lo and behold, when Ruth goes off to scavenge for food, to glean for food, the first field she finds herself in belongs to Boaz. And the way the story tells it, it's clear, isn't it? It's not luck. It's the providential work of God. Last week we saw the kindness of Boaz. Providentially, Ruth went out to glean for scraps in his field. And on the first day, she might have expected to collect half a kilo. Do you remember I showed you what half a kilo of grain looked like last week? But instead of going away with just enough grain for her to make a meal for that night, she was welcomed by Boaz, enveloped into his family of workers, given cooked food to eat at her meal break time. She was given water to drink and protection And perhaps most importantly, she was allowed to glean from the very best spots in the field. And she went away that week, not that day, not with a tiny bundle of grain, but with a whole ephah of grain. Remember I showed you what an ephah of grain looks like? I've still got it here. It's a little bit lighter this week because the kids were making flour from it last week. But kind of give you an idea, there's an ephah of grain. This is how much she collected on her first day. It's a huge amount. And it's because of the kindness of Boaz. Ruth and Naomi's fortunes are turning. The start of that first day, before Ruth went out to glean, Naomi had nothing. A dead husband and two dead sons, but she did have Ruth, and in her wider family she had this man, Boaz. At the first day after gleaning, Ruth comes back with excess and the promise of more the next day. Let me just read to you from the last verse in chapter 2 of Ruth. It's on page 411 in your Bibles if you want to follow along today. It says this, So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvest were finished and she lived with her mother-in-law. So we get to the end of chapter 2 and I wonder now how you would rate the quality of the life that Ruth and Naomi share together. They've been through some hardships, haven't they? They've both lost husbands and Naomi's lost her sons. But now at the end of chapter 2, they're no longer empty in the sense that they have food. They've probably got food in excess if the results from the first day of gleaning continued throughout the rest of the harvest. They're no longer starving. And perhaps they've had enough grain that they've been able to sell off some of that leftover grain to buy a few of the other things they need. Now life's far from perfect, is it? But they still have some things. Let me get to the start of chapter 3 and it says this. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you 
where you'll be well provided for. And we've talked about this in the kids' talk. See, Naomi outlines a plan for Ruth, and I like the way Tim Patrick puts it, because Tim says to us, it's a high-risk plan. Because what Naomi is suggesting is not just a spur of the moment, let's kind of pop down to the beach for a walk kind of plan. Rather, it's an intriguing and an exciting plan. But it's also kind of sinister, isn't it? Or salacious. It happens late at night with a man and a woman alone. Have a look at the plan with me. It starts in verse 2, and this is Naomi speaking. Naomi says, Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Well, as we read this, I think most of us probably get the general gist of what's going on. But the detail's perhaps a little bit more confusing. It all makes sense until verse 4. But then what exactly does Naomi mean when she asks Ruth to lie down and uncover Boaz's feet? Is it a literal thing she's asking Ruth to do? Or is it a euphemism for something perhaps a little more saucy? What exactly is going on here? Well, I told you that I met Meredith on a bus... It was during our university years. We were both at National Training Event, which is a kind of annual summer conference that some of the uni students went to. That year, there was a whole busload of us that went over from Adelaide, so many so that we hired a bus and we travelled over together. And now when it came time, the end of that conference, to make our way back to Adelaide, Meredith was late meeting the bus, and the only spare seat left on the entire bus was next to me. And so... She had no choice but to sit with me. See, Ruth ended up in Boaz's field. I ended up with a spare seat on the bus that got filled, thankfully, with Meredith. And we got to know each other on that bus as it made its way from Sydney all the way back to Adelaide. Now, roll the clock forward a few months and we're back at university. Meredith's there. I know what I want. I want to ask her out on a date. But if you've ever done this, if you've ever asked someone out on a date, you'll know that's a bit nerve-wracking, isn't it? Because there's risk, isn't there? There's risk involved in this. What if they say no? What if I've read the situation incorrectly? What would happen to our blossoming friendship? Would it end with rejection? And how will I cope with that rejection? Same kind of thing's happening in Ruth here, isn't it? There's a lot at stake for Ruth. See, it's a bit more like, I guess, what Hollywood calls the friend zone they're kind of in at the moment. Ruth and Naomi have got things pretty good with Boaz at the moment as a friend. He's already providing for them, already protecting Ruth from the dangers that might happen in the open fields. What happens if Naomi's plan goes wrong? Will Boaz still allow her to glean in future years in their fields? And maybe that's why they wait right to the end of the harvest before they start to enact on this plan. But Naomi urges Ruth, get ready, wash. Always a good start to a day, isn't it? Wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your finest of clothes and head down to the threshing floor. 
Now, exactly what happens on that threshing floor seems to be a source of debate amongst the writers and the scholars. Some suggest that uncovering feet is, in fact, a euthanism. Some go as far as to say that Boaz was taken advantage of as a tired and drunk man, that Ruth forced him into a position by sleeping with him where he needed to then marry her to keep a place of honour. Those in favour of that position say, it took place in the middle of the night. Why else would it happen in the middle of the night? But I think what's more likely going on here, and I'm leaning heavily on Tim here, is what actually happens is recorded literally in the story we have before us. That this is literally a story about uncovering and covering of feet. The reason why I think that is because it's using some words that play out earlier on. Let me just go back, for, let me go with you first to verse 7 of chapter 2 and we'll just read actually what happens. Boaz is now finished eating and drinking and he lies down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth does as, she, as she's told and let's pick up the story, chapter 3, verse 8. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. So Boaz wakes up because he's startled. It's probably because he's got cold feet at this stage. He wakes up and he sees Ruth lying there. As you read it, you get the impression, don't you, that this was the last thing that Boaz expected. Who are you? And because of that, I don't think this is probably a custom of the day that we've just lost today, that you go and lie at someone's feet as a way of proposing. I think it's unusual for Boaz as well. He's shocked to see a woman lying at his feet in the middle of the night. And he asks and she replies, I am your servant, Ruth. But here's the important bit. Look to see what Ruth asks him to do. She says, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. See, these verses... They're not translated this way in an NIV, but they could be translated as spread your wing over me. Spread your wing over me. So what you say, well, come back with me to chapter 2. Flick over the page. Do you remember Boaz meeting Ruth in the field for the first time and praising her for the kindness she'd shown to her mother-in-law, Naomi? Boaz prays to Ruth, saying in verse 2, May you be richly rewarded, that's because of your kindness, by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. See, the word here that's translated as wings is exactly the same word in the Hebrew as used in chapter 3. Essentially, Ruth is saying, Boaz, spread your wing over me. And so she's saying to Boaz, you prayed for me earlier in the field, saying, may God reward me under whose wing I've taken refuge. And now, Boaz, I'd like to have God working in you to bring about that reward. You're the one who can provide a home for me. We've seen so far in this story, haven't we, that God is active in the world. He's the unnamed character that kind of works behind each movement in the story. In the first movement, the family of leave Israel and they head to Moab. The father and the sons die there. And you're kind of left asking the question, is it coincidence or not? 
Naomi's left with no hope apart from Ruth. Is it coincidence that she has Ruth with her? Ruth goes out to glean in the field. It's not a random field, but Boaz's field. Is it chance or is it luck? In the book of Ruth, these, these things that look at first to be random are far from that, are they? They're presented as the providential work of God. And now we see in chapter 3, God's purposes being carried out in a person, in the person of Boaz. I wonder, do you think of God as still being at work in the world? Some people believe that uh, God created this world, but now he just sits back and lets it kind of unfold, as it were, like a clock that's been wound up tight and is now just unwinding itself. The book of Ruth helps us to see that God is still active in the world. And in chapter 3, we see that God sometimes uses people as his agent. That doesn't, of course, mean that God can't do things in this world without using people. As a God, he parted the sea all on his own so that the Israelites could walk through as if on dry land. He doesn't need people to accomplish his ends but he does sometimes choose to use people for that role. For me, as I look back over the course of my life, I can see God working in some people's actions. Perhaps this is no more the case and no more clearly than with Warwick. Warwick was the bus driver on the day when Meredith and I sat next to each other as we came back from Sydney. As the driver, he was in charge of the stereo system. And so he was in charge of playing pretty much the whole way back sermons on the topic of love, sex and marriage. (laughs) What a topic to have playing as you sit next to someone who will eventually turn out to be your future wife. By the way, Warwick was no random bus driver. He was also our pastor. Don't be too worried about what your bus driver might be playing through the stereo next time you travel from Sydney to Adelaide. So chapter 3 of Ruth helps us to see that God sometimes uses people to achieve his ends. I hope you remember that as you pray for people in the world, as you pray for your colleagues at work that they might learn about Jesus. Remember, God sometimes uses people to achieve his ends. Maybe God will be using you to help them learn about Jesus. I want you to remember that as we pray as a church for the Church Missionary Society, that the whole world would come to know of who Jesus is. Maybe God will use you as an agent to bring the gospel to the ends of the world. God uses people sometimes to achieve his ends. Well, the story continues with Boaz's response to Ruth. Let me read it to you from verse 10. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid, for I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. I wonder if anything strange strikes you about Boaz's response. For me, when I first read this, it kind of seems as though Boaz is saying thank you to Ruth for him choosing him as a potential husband. 
But then what's the earlier kindness that he's referring to? That's what he's saying. Well, it can only be that Boaz is referring back to his previous interaction with Ruth. Again, back in chapter 2. In verses 11 and 12, Boaz commends Ruth for all that she's done for Naomi in leaving the land of Moab and her people there and following Ruth. If that's the case, and if we're to make sense of chapter 3 then, we need to see that the action of Ruth here is not so much for her own good, but for the good of Naomi. See, this kindness that Ruth is showing at this point is for Naomi, not for Boaz. By propositioning Boaz on the threshing floor, Ruth has done a great thing for Naomi. It's Naomi's future that she is securing. And Boaz makes that very clear, doesn't he? He says, you've not run after younger men. See, Ruth could have found, potentially, a suitor in a younger man. Could have taken her into her home and provided for her what she needed. But it's only Boaz who can redeem Elimelech's family. Only Boaz who can give Naomi a true heir. For Boaz is Naomi's guardian redeemer. But if that's to happen, Ruth needs to marry the older Boaz. It seems like it would have cost her. She could have married a younger man. And although Boaz is presented in a, as a great character in this story, here, does, here it seems there's a cost that comes with Ruth as she dis- uses her kindness. Let me just pause here for a moment and just go very briefly into what a guardian redeemer is. We'll see this a little more next week as we look at chapter 4. I just want to get our heads around, kind of in preparation for that, around a Jewish custom that's called leveret marriage. Come with me, if you will, to Deuteronomy chapter 25. Outlines this principle. It's on page 310 of your Bibles, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5, I'm going to read from, on page 310 of your Bibles. It says this there, it says, If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. By the time we get to the book of Ruth, this law seems to have been modified or changed to some extent. So, so now the nearest surviving male relative could become or could provide that heir so that the family name may continue. Kind of get the idea of what leveret marriage is from there and why Boaz as a guardian redeemer is so important. Well, the chapter ends with Ruth returning to Naomi, and just like at the end of chapter 2, Ruth arrives back home with a gift for her mother. Again, more grain, more food. Have a look just how much she returns with me. With, with me, it's there in verse 17. So she comes back with six measures of barley. We don't know today what a, a measure of barley means, how much it is. It's not an ephah like we looked at last week. Because if she had six ephahs on her back, I don't think she'd be able to carry that. But it's still a large amount. It's so much that she needs Boaz to help her 
place the bundle of grain onto her back so that she can carry it home. And did you notice again that the focus here at the end of the chapter is not so much on Ruth, but rather it's on Naomi. Boaz loads her up with grain, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And so here at the end of chapter 3, we're again reminded that Naomi is not empty. She's back in the land where she belongs. God is providentially taking care of her. He's using both Ruth and Boaz as his agents of kindness. And Ruth the Moabitess, the great-grandmother of King David, is once again legitimized as a woman of great kindness and great worth. She's held up as a stunning example, isn't she, of faithfulness and patience and self-sacrifice. Well, I hope you've seen today in this story how God works in people sometimes. Ultimately, he works in the person of his son, doesn't he? And his son, Jesus. Ruth has demonstrated in this story great loyalty, great faithfulness and great sacrifice. But it is Jesus ultimately who shows us what faithfulness and self-sacrifice really looks like. In our story today, Boaz has been identified as Naomi's redeemer. Today we know that it is Jesus who is able to bring about our redemption. He's able to free us from the things that hold us captive. And he does it through his own self-sacrifice. We're going to look at this much more closely next week where the idea of a guardian redeemer is really fleshed out in the story of Ruth. Today we've seen Ruth take a risk for the sake of Naomi and offer herself to Boaz, really in self-sacrifice and in kindness for Naomi. As I finish, I want to pray this morning a prayer from Philippians chapter 2, which reminds us about how much Jesus gave up for our sake, reminds us of his kindness towards us. Let me pray for us. Father God, we give you thanks for this wonderful story and for its demonstration of kindness and loyalty and self-sacrifice. And we praise you for your son, Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Father, we ask that you would work in and through us to make us Christ-like, to make us into a people of kindness and self-sacrifice and faithfulness. We ask this to the praise of your glorious name. Amen.